Um, we are in the second week now of a, well, it's going to be a 13-month sermon series. So uh, next December, uh, before Christmas is the plan, we'll see if it actually works out that way. But right now it's all laid out, um, and then uh, I think that'll, it'll work out that way, but we shall see. Uh, so it's a good time to be here, kind of preaching-wise. We're just beginning a series in um, a new book of the Bible, which has been a little while, a few months for us. We've been in kind of topical land for a while, doing some big questions things, and our Gospel and Sexuality series this fall. So uh, a nice change of pace here. It's kind of our preferred kind of sweet spot for us is to preach um, more explicitly or kind of directly or as a starting point right from a book of the Bible and to work our way all the way through it. So um, today we are in week two of Acts, the book of Acts. If you're brand new to the Bible or haven't read this book in a while, I'll recap this uh, here, just a few sentences. If you uh, want more in this, though, I'll point you back to our sermon last week on our website, or if you want to talk to one of us, we'd love, actually prefer to meet with you over coffee or just uh, here after the service and catch up a little bit. Um, but again, our, all our sermons are um, logged or, or, uh, or podcasted or on our website, so I'll point you there too. But Acts is the uh, fifth book of the New Testament. That's part two to the Gospel of Luke. So uh, if you're here last week, we talked about that, but Luke wrote both of these, kind of a two-volume set uh, that tells the continued story of all that Luke came to do and teach. So culminating with his death and resurrection in Luke, and then now in Acts, his ascension, into heaven to be with God the Father, the sending of the Holy Spirit of God into the hearts and lives and minds and just very bodies of redeemed sinners or Christians, the birth of his church, and the spread of the gospel all the way to Rome, which is the center of political and cultural life in the ancient world. It's kind of the capital of the ancient world. So it goes beyond that as well, but that's how the book ends in chapter 28. And so we're calling this series, The Church is Born, uh, Acts uh, Actually, because this is one of the main themes, the church is being born. There's so many like subtitles we could give to it, but Acts itself by title refers to the Acts of Jesus or the Acts of the Spirit. So traditionally, and you guys might have this in your Bibles, the way it's printed, it might say the Acts of the Apostles. That's not wrong, uh, but it's probably more accurate to say that, the, that it was the Act of the Holy Spirit of God or Jesus himself kind of spiritually working through, acting through the first Christians or the first pastors, the apostles, and how the, the gospel then was established in Jerusalem but went out like brush fire uh, to, uh, to the ends of the earth. So uh, today then, to catch you up a little bit in terms of where we've been kind of by, by way of timeline, is Jesus is still on earth at this point. He has been raised from the dead for 40 days, spending time with his disciples and appearing to many others as well, eating with them, teaching them, comforting them, and now he's going to ascend to heaven. That's the big uh, point of today. But before that, a last bit of encouragement. So even though he's going to continue to be with him by his spirit, he's leaving their physical presence. And these are kind of the last words he has. And so, again, he's not dying again. He's still alive. He's reigning from heaven. But at the same time, his last kind of bit of of words being in body or right around his disciples, his last words, and a bit of grace I think he wants to impart to them and show them And so um, it's important. I mean, think about like leaving a spouse or leaving your kids or a dear friend for life and you had like a few minutes left. Like what would you say? These are important words. They tell us a lot about the gospel. They're summative, they're instructional, they're motivational, they're important. And equally important is what's not said, right? I mean, we'd all probably all do that as well if we had just a moment or something and we had a few important things to say. We'd say, and these things are important, but what I really want to say is you know, blank, and we'd, we'd say those things with a loved one, and so that's kind of going on, going on here. Last week, I said it kind of in these terms, too, and we'll, we'll see it again play out this way today, but when Luke writes, he, he's, a, he's an historian, he's a doctor, actually, by, by uh, trade or by profession. We see this in the Bible, 
he's kind of like an academic. He's scientifically minded, and so he writes in a very careful, carefully researched kind of way, and he, he talks that way actually in, in the first part of Acts. We saw last week in, in Luke as well. So we'll see the what. We'll see a very carefully researched, hey, this is what happened in the first century. We, we saw these things. We touched them. We heard them with our very ears. We wrote them down. Uh, these things actually occurred historically, and we call it theological history too because it's not just history, it's theology. But that's, that's kind of the what. But there's also the how it's said as well. And so we'll, we'll see this kind of surfacey what. Then we'll go deeper and ask, well, how is it said? What words were used to kind of communicate that idea? And where's the gospel symbolically kind of gotten at or portrayed in these, in these words and sentences, even beyond what Luke intended? Because God is the ultimate author of the scriptures, of, of the Bible. And so what is he kind of intending through these inspired words that go beyond what Luke's even, uh, even intending here or, or thinking? So, um, which happens all the time. Even by experience, we, we can say, sometimes you, you may have said something or taught someone to someone once. They came up to you and said, oh, I really love when you said this. And you're thinking, oh, I didn't actually say that or mean that, but that's pretty great, <laughs> you know? So we have this by experience. Like, I get that a lot just preaching sometimes. Someone will come up and say, oh, this was great when you did that. And I'd say, I don't think I said that. <laughs> I didn't mean to anyway, but that's pretty great. So that was clearly God. So it's, it's that kind of way. These, are, these were penned by an actual man who lived, a Jewish man. Not, actually, not Jewish. He was a Gentile man, lived 2,000 years ago. And he wrote these things. He, he really wrote them. But God intended things through him that he didn't even intend. And so that's where we kind of get deeper. We'll see that play out today. All right, so Acts, uh, last week's Acts 1, 1 to 5, and also a big introduction. Today we're going to continue the story here by looking at Jesus' ascension to heaven, Acts 1, 6 to 11. So let's read that in full here to, uh, to begin. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right, so let's just go right through this today. Jesus' ascension, as you see here, is a part of this, but there's a pretty neat break into three sections uh, here and three kind of big things going on. Uh, and so I want to talk through all three of those things, but sort of park a bit on the last idea with his ascension and talk, uh, at least end with that. It's kind of a climactic thing because the passage ends with it, but I think also sort of the... The theology ends with it in a way, too, in, in this paragraph. So let's start with verses 6 to 7. So as I was already saying, this is the end of those 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, during which time, again, he'd been appearing to many people. He's been eating with them, proving his resurrection to them, his bodily resurrection, teaching them that he was the point of the whole Old Testament. It was always, in, in every way, looking ahead to him by way of similarity or, in some ways, by contrast, but in that way, setting the stage for the better thing that was him giving commands to the disciples. We'll see that again here in a minute. But the passage starts actually with the disciples asking Jesus a question. Will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? It's actually a really logical, fitting question that you'd think after the guy rose himself from the dead, he'd been just, you know, living victoriously, totally overwhelmed death. There was no match for Jesus. And you think they would just ask him this, right? It makes sense. Like, is this, this seems like this is the time. Like, isn't this it? 
So embedded, though, in this question, though, was this greater Jewish hope for the coming of a new David-like king. So referring back to King David, Israel's greatest king in the Old Testament, the one that God specifically by name covenanted with and said, I'm going to bring another king like you from your genealogical line into the world who will rule like you, but much better than you at the same time, and his rule will be forever. And so referring to Jesus, now not all the Jews saw it that way or were expecting Christ to be the kind of savior he was, but that was how God covenanted with David. And so, uh, but again, to usher in like a, like a good king does, an era of rest and deliverance and peace and doing all these kinds of good spiritual governing type things, uh, even physical ones, but spiritual governing type things that good, good kings do. And in Jesus' case, perfect kings do. So now with the disciples, it's hard here, if not impossible, for us to understand exactly what they were thinking. Uh, but it appears, kind of through the way that they worded their question, that they kind of knew and kind of didn't know what they were supposed to know. So, uh, meaning they, they kind of knew things like, well, Jesus did come to restore a kingdom. That's actually right. And he was the new David. That is actually right. But he also came to restore a type of kingdom that wasn't just for Israel, but for spiritual Israel, or just like Israel, Israel. So meaning Jews and non-Jews who believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And we're going to see that play out, that the Jews, the first Christians who were all Jewish, did not expect it to kind of play out this way. And so they're surprised by it. They're shocked. God corrects their way of thinking and shows them, oh, that's what was going on in the Old Testament. That's why Jesus came to die. And this is how much it opens up a way of access to all people from all tribes and tongues and nations. So, but at this point, their way of thinking is limited when they likely refer to just physical Israel here rather than, than uh, spiritual. On top of that, the kingdom did not have to do with overthrowing Rome physically. So again, this is speculation, but it's likely they were at least in part thinking, all right, the Romans who had annexed our land centuries prior, they're still here, they're not good people, we don't like them, they're in our land. They have their own governors here, their own leaders, and they're oppressing us in various capacities. Now, isn't it time to kind of take up arms? Or they might be looking at this raised guy and just says, well, Jesus, you just spoke and the, wind, the winds kind of calmed on the sea when you walked on it. Just do that to the Romans, you know? Uh, but Jesus didn't come for that purpose. He's clear in his ministry there are greater problems in the world than our physical ones. He addresses them kind of in some ways, not that those are unimportant, but he doesn't come to be a political savior. It's, it's crystal clear. And it, this is actually one of the reasons why people hated him. They expected a kind of savior that was going to overthrow Rome, but when Jesus came, he's saying things like, I actually came to destroy what's truly enslaving you, your sins. To people who thought they were good, too. So there's like a layer of offense to that as well. But I came to save you from your sins, not, and that actually enslaves you, not the Romans. They kind of are, but what's really the problem here is death and the devil and sin and your, your own hard hearts and your distance from God. I came to fix all of that. And so that was another problem, too, here with the, their way of thinking. But even more than that, it was, when we talk about the kingdom, it was kind of present, but kind of not. And so here, Jesus is, is king. He's starting to rule. The kingdom of God is broken in, clearly, kind of by way of resurrection into the present, and yet it's still yet future at the same time. And so the way that the disciples are asking, but even more the way that Jesus responds, it, it implies it's yet to come, or it's going to be in the future, and, and you don't know the times, he says, and we'll, we'll get, to that, get to that here. And so, two-staged. So Jesus then says simply here, his response is, and it's probably kind of frustrating for them to hear it this way, kind of, we're looking for a yes or a no, you know, but he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father, God the Father, has fixed by his own authority. And so a couple of quick things here. Uh, one, 
is this is a very simple um, and helpful depiction of how Christians view history and the timeline of biblical history. So uh, we, and this is a, this isn't watered down, this is simplified, but, but this is the meat and bones. This is, a, this is right from the mouth of Jesus and the pen of Luke. Jesus came to die for our sins. He rose from the dead. He ascended. And now he's going to come back a second time to fully establish his reign on a new earth. So that there's, there's more to say than that. That's basically how we view. And we're in this in-between times now between his first and second advent or arrival. So it's kind of like in the Old Testament, for those of you that know this story, if it's helpful to, to see it this way because the Bible does, Israel had a two-staged kind of redemptive thing as well. A time between their exodus from Egypt, their slavery to the Egyptians and how God saved them from that. A time between that and their Old Testament kingdom in the promised land. They had 40 years of desert wandering and, and some other time before they entered and that kingdom happened, uh, it was actually established later than that too. But, and so the idea is, so are we as the church, as kind of true Israel, reliving out these things in between our exodus from sin and death that happened at the cross when Jesus died for us, and Jesus' full establishing of his earthly kingdom, which is yet future to us. And so like Israel, we're in this in-between time, prodding ahead, looking back to our past salvation, but also looking ahead to kind of the final fulfillment of it. So kind of complicated, but it gets even more complicated. So on top of that, Jesus, I think what he's doing by sticking around for 40 days here, it seems like kind of an arbitrary number, like why not 39 or why not 14 days or why not 100 days or something? By sticking around for 40 days, I think it's symbolically showing us that all of what I just said here about connecting Israel and the church is, is true. So in other words, like Israel had 40 years in the desert, so is there another 40 now in between Jesus's kind of new exodus that he brings into history through his death and resurrection, so a new kind of deliverance, and his ascension. And so if that's true, then... It, the kingdom's like, it's hard because it's like future, but already really here at the same time. So another 40, in other words, and implies that the kingdom actually is here. So we actually truly have, Christians have truly entered the ultimate promised land. We've gone through another 40, in other words. And so it's already fully here. Jesus actually is king fully now in heaven next to God the Father, ruling over all things, even things that seem like he's out of control of, which he isn't. He's over all things, ruling over all things. Everything's under his feet, including our sins and the devil, which is a really good, which is really good news for people who are far from him like us. So it's both. When we ask the question, is the kingdom here or not, it's kind of like, wow, that's, that's not a yes or no question. <laughs> it's really complicated, but really cool at the, at the same time. So, all right, so that's the first thing now, sort of the what to it. Now, as we dig a little bit deeper and look at the how, the, um, the second thing to look at, is to see that Jesus puts the emphasis on it's not for you to know. So this is huge, and this is yet another reminder. We've seen this a lot in the Bible, in some past series, even recently too here at the church, we've been here for this, but he puts the emphasis on, on this idea of not knowing, which is another reminder that there are things that we know in theology or about God or about Jesus, and things we don't know or can't know, or even more than that, aren't supposed to know. And I think the latter is in mind here because if Jesus just said, like, the actual day, you know, people think they know these things, right, and write books and make money off these things. Like, it's going to be September 22nd, 2000, whatever, and then it doesn't happen, and then no one buys the book anymore, and then another book uh, is written. But 
Anyway, Jesus, I think Jesus is saying, if I told you the date, you could, your brain could handle that. You could understand it. So I don't think he's meaning you can't understand when the date is. I think he means you aren't supposed to know. It's not for you to know this. And so that's actually a really comforting, maybe humbling, but comforting thing too when we think about it because it's where the passage actually starts to relate us to the gospel through it. Or at least the idea of grace through these very ideas. And so this, this is what I mean. When we talk about the gospel, you could use this language to talk about the center of the faith in this way. There's other ways to do this, but this is one way to kind of reword Jesus' words here when talking about the center of the faith. It is not for you to save yourselves from your sins, something the Father has done and fixed by his own authority. This is what the Bible says elsewhere, and it's almost like Jesus is here. He's talking about his, like the coming of the kingdom in the future, but he's using language that, that he uses elsewhere to talk about the center of his death, the gospel, which is his death and resurrection, and the idea of the New Testament, which is completely his work, not ours. So the answer here for the disciples in Acts 1 is, is not all knowledge. The answer to our problems is not knowing everything. The answer to our distance from God is not having all spiritual wisdom and knowledge. It's the Holy Spirit and trusting that things are in God's hands. And it's exactly the same way with our salvation. The answer is not us knowing everything about everything, but as Christians we believe that, that sort of everything sort of came down out of heaven and walked among us as a person. And he loved us and taught us and comforted us and died for us. That's knowledge. Knowledge is not like us figuring out the theological math and doing all the calculus and like, oh my gosh, hope I got it right. It's actually, no, it's given like it's placed in our lap. We believe in generosity. We believe in God. We believe in his gift to us, not just the Holy Spirit, but his bloody death and his resurrection. And, and we trust that things are in his hands. So if you're brand new to Christianity today, that's something huge to understand about about Christians and what the Bible is saying is we don't know it all, and that's actually okay. We don't think we have to have all the answers to be saved. We don't think we have to have perfect theology to be saved. That would be another way of saying we think we have to clean ourselves up in a way, intellectually, uh, to, be, to be saved, uh, to be reconciled with God, to sort of fix our own problems. But Christianity is completely opposed to that way of thinking. And actually, it, it starts pop, popping up in different ways in the first century that the church clearly speaks against, even right in the Bible, this idea of Gnosticism, if you know what that is. I'm not going to go into that for sake of time today, but, uh, but the secret knowledge idea. Christians are not about secret knowledge. We're about Jesus solving mysteries for us. We're about him revealing the love of God for us when we aren't even looking for him and making it sensible by becoming human and, and dying for our sins and in that way doing away with earthly, earthly philosophy. But All right. I feel like I just almost got into like three sermons there, but I got to move on for time's sake. So um, verse 8. All right, so, but, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. All right, so great verse here. This is, uh, again, uh, in some ways basic, but so good, but just basic kind of Christian way of viewing reality and mission and things. We'll talk about some of this. But So first, the what here. So he says, you'll receive power through the Holy Spirit of God, and you'll be my witnesses. And then, so notice the um, concentric circle idea here, or kind of the trajectory of this. So it starts in Jerusalem, which is a city. It's, it starts small and gets big. So Jerusalem, that's where they are now. It 
widens to Judea, which is like the province of Jerusalem. Think like state or something. Then it goes to Samaria, which is the province north of, of Judea, which uh, is kind of like where a lot of half-Jews live. And so if you're familiar with the biblical story, this is where like, um, the Samaritans are from. So like uh, Jews who were assimilated into Syrian culture centuries before this. And, so, and the Jews hated them because of that, and, and they had all kinds of prejudice towards them, and you know, it was super messy. But Jesus is saying that the gospel is going to go to them, and then there's one more ring to the ends of the earth. And so it, it's supposed to get kind of like uh, consecutively less Jewish, not, not that it, it sort of doesn't keep going to Jews, because it, it, it happens every day, even today. It just means that the gospel is clearly for all nations. And so Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, it's like it's going to places where there are no people of God at all, like even in an Old Testament understanding, in a sense, it's going that far. And so um, what's cool in Acts then is we're going to see this exact thing take place. Jesus never lies, ever. What he intends always comes to pass, which is encouraging. Again, this is implicit here. What he intends for your life, Christian, that you finish your race, will come to pass. Like Philippians 1.6 it, when, when he says that I know what God began in you, that he'll continue that and bring that to completion. Whatever God began, he's going to help you finish. That's going to happen. Just like this happens in Acts and in history. Like be comforted in that and know that God is at work in your life to ensure that you finish your race. Also understand here that in this passage, when we think about ends of the earth here, um, in this passage, you and I, we are the ends of the earth. We're not Jerusalem. America is not the starting point. Jerusalem is. So uh, as opposed to thinking about, like a lot of times this passage taught sometimes, and it's kind of placed over the American church, and it's sort of like used as a way to like, um, be this impetus towards global mission, which is fine. Uh, the ends of the earth are still out there from our reference point, right? It's like... It's like being on the North Pole and saying every direction is south or something, right? So the ends of the earth are always going to be out there. But, um, but here, in this passage, we are the ends of the earth. And so the, the first point is not to look at this and say, okay, where should I go and live to tell people about Jesus? That's not the first point to this. The first point is, no, you, you and I are the ends of the earth. The gospel got to us when we were lying dead in our tombs. So think about yourself then being a lost person at the outer reaches of the planet that Jesus knew, loved, and empowered his church and his gospel to get to to save you. Isn't that amazing? In a much, more, a much better way, more freeing way even, to, at least to start here, but, but to read this passage. In other words, because Jesus said this, and because he gave the Holy Spirit to a bunch of Jewish men who then preached the gospel, you are saved. Because he said this, because he intended this, because he empowered this to happen, because you and I are at the ends of the earth, because he, he intended all of that, you and I are saved. We are so far from God. We are so distanced from him. We are so at the outer reaches. We are in so many ways exiled from his presence, and yet, because of this, uh, we're we're saved. And so just super cool, right? I mean, this is huge. It's just, this alone is reason to, to praise God. All right, then he goes on and says, um, I'm going to focus on two things here. First, you will, well, the phrase you'll be my witnesses, but we'll look at the first couple words. 
you will. So he doesn't tell them, or he, he tells them, doesn't ask them, right? So there's no question here. He's not saying, how do you feel, you know, today? Or um, he's trying to gauge, like, their, the, the sense to which they want this. He tells them. And again, there's a lot of good news in this, right? As we think about where is, drill into this a little bit. Where is the gospel here? He tells, he doesn't ask. Just like he tells us we're saved, he doesn't ask us if we want to be. And so the, the forcefulness of Jesus' language here is actually a really gentle, loving thing. I have died for you is different than saying, do you want me to die for you? Right? Or think like a, like a parent. You are my child is different than saying, do you want to be my child? Like, parents don't really ask that every morning. You know, like, well, what about today? Like, do you want to be my kid? Oh, you don't? Well, I didn't expect that. Now what do I do? You know? Or something like that. This never happens. We declare it. We tell it. I find myself all the time as a father, like, just declaring that to my daughters and my son. Like, you are my daughter, and I'm your father. That is who you are. That's your identity. It's much, it's much more safe. It's, uh, it's much more secure than the question of how you feel determines your status in your family. Like, because feelings fluctuate, right? They, they, they shift all the time. They blow different directions like the wind, and God knows this. And he also, it's also not about us, the whole story, and God knows that as well. All right, so then the second piece to this is you will be, then he says, my witnesses. And Luke got at this at the end of his gospel in chapter 24. Jesus calls his disciples his witnesses, which is referring to these first 11 men, going to become 12 again. That's next week. Peter gets that one. Um, but he, he calls his disciples, and then I think by reference, all Christians, witnesses, which again, I think too, yet again, is this wonderful term full of grace, and it helps us shape what Christian mission looks like and what the essence of the gospel is. In other words, witnesses, so if it helps, think of like what witnesses do in a courtroom. It's, I think, wider than that semantically here, but I think that's, that's, a, that's a helpful picture. What do witnesses do? I think witnesses suggest that our main mission is to announce and proclaim and share a story and to make someone famous and to talk about what we have seen and heard and experienced. In other words, we're not Jesus' gurus. Though we are mystical, nor are we his moralistic teachers, though we do teach. But primarily we're as heralds. We hold up the newspaper or the website or whatever, we point to the headline which says, there's a new king. Have you heard this? The tomb's empty. He's ascended. He reigns. Or another headline that says, the war is over. Isn't that amazing news? There's no more war now between God and people. And we announce it. We declare it. It's already true. And it's not bent on people believing it for it to be true. And so that shapes, I think, what Jesus wants here is he's partly wanting proclaimers and heralds of these things uh, rather than... Um, an overly simplified moralistic teaching enterprise. All right, so before moving on, I just want to sit here for a second. This is a really big deal, and um, we're going to see this in the book of Acts. So I'll talk, we'll talk more about it as the series goes on. But if you're a Christian, so just to go back to these last two sections here, or this phrase, you'll be my witnesses. If you're a Christian, you've been declared a witness, not invited to it so much, but declared it. And there's freedom in that. And, so, and what that means is 
it, your role as a witness or like, a, like an evangelist or someone sharing the gospel with people, that's not tied to your inherent sense of goodness, your doubts, your fears, or your bad deeds, right? You can be a bad person and be a witness. Like in a courtroom, someone could be a really, really, really bad person but still tell the truth in a courtroom, right? It's the same with Christians. It's not tied to your holiness, you know, if he said here, if Jesus didn't say, you're my witness, he, will say, he said, you will be my never sinners. If he said that, we, it'd be a different thing, right? He doesn't say that, though. He doesn't say, you, you will be my never sinners. If he did, we, we couldn't be sinful and be his people and his witnesses. This doesn't condone sin by any stretch, but it should motivate us sometimes to see the gospel in, in a very grace-filled light, but also maybe not to wait around too much to witness. And I was thinking this past week um, a little bit about my own life and then some of your own stories I know because you've shared these with me, but I just want to speak in a broad way here when I say this. This is what grace does. So I'm going to say this and I'll come back to this, but um, this is what grace does or kind of means about this whole issue. It's possible that your greatest evangelistic moment ever as a Christian will immediately follow your greatest failure. I mean, immediately. It's possible your best moment ever as a witness will immediately follow your biggest face plant spiritually that you, you can even dream up right now. Your, your biggest of sins, the, the most worst, most perverted, most just hateful thing you can ever think or do. It's possible that your greatest moment as a witness will immediately follow that. It might not, it might not too, but it's not hinged on that thing. In other words, grace, we're, because we're saved by grace, not by works, right? Or do you think when you sin that you've kind of lost the ability to, to be a witness or you've lost your place and so you have to go two weeks without, kind of, without being super bad until God says, okay, now it's time again, get back on the horse, you know? If you think that way, you're not thinking like a Christian, you're thinking like a moralist, you're thinking like a religious person, but not a biblicist, not a grace-filled individual. Again, it's not condoning sin. So I think, oh man, I'm going to go sin so I can prove this right. Like, don't do that either. But it's just saying that if grace is true, then this is possible. And witnessing has nothing to do with your morality. The gospel makes this possible. So I, I think in terms of like the how here, I don't want to talk a ton about this today because I don't even think it's the main part of the passage. But when we think about witnessing um, I do want to say two quick things, though. I think this is important for our culture. Um, our city, I know a lot of you guys are doing this. I'm actually pulling from um, stories that some of you have told me. So, and, and I've seen this have some teeth, too, in terms of evangelism in our culture. But I think when we move towards people who aren't Christians yet, when we share the gospel, um, when we witness, when we ask the question, what does it mean to witness, I think two, two things big things it boils down to. One, love people well. Love people well as you've first been loved by God through Jesus. And then second, be prepared to tell them that the tomb is empty. Like, actually empty. And let that be weird. Because for a lot of people, it will be weird. And the chances are pretty high that a lot of people in your life, if they're not Christians yet, they think that you believe in a metaphorical resurrection. In this culture, chances are pretty high that, yeah, well, you know, 
there goes so-and-so, and, -so. and I, I think they believe in like a phoenix-type story of rising from the ashes of your circumstance, but they don't really believe Jesus actually rose from the dead. But I think what we, what we need to do when we witness is we need to say, actually, no, we do. We believe the tomb is actually empty. We believe he walked out. That's why we're Christians. That's what attracts us to this whole thing. That's what, we, that's what I feel like I need as an almost dead person. And as you, as you bring that to people, I think that'll do, you know, one of two things. One, it will centralize the faith around history and around the gospel that Jesus slayed death for us. But it will also filter things that are less important underneath it. So the center of Christianity then won't be some really peripheral, minor doctrinal, weird thing about, you know, um, I don't know. Like, why did Moses have to, like, circumcise his, his son? Like, it was weird when God was, like, all fired up about that back in Exodus, whatever, you know. So there's something weird like that. Like, it, it puts the minor things underneath the main thing, and it makes us then say, whether people think this or not, it's like, actually, we believe the resurrection happened, and we believe that if it happened, it changes everything. All of a sudden, everything Jesus said, even the weird things, matter. We might not have all the answers for why he says these strange things, but we're Christians because we think the tomb actually is empty. So let that be weird. Proclaim it. Herald it. Share it. If people ask you about your faith, start with that. Love people well. Listen to people well. But actually bring that up and say, actually, this is who I am. This is what our church believes. This is what the church has believed for 2,000 years. Yeah, we really think a resurrection took place, and we put all our eggs in that basket. We go, all our chips, we're all in. Boom, that's it, and uh, that's, that's who we are. So, so let that be weird. We'll see it time and time again in Acts. People, this is how they, the apostles do this as well. They, they bring the gospel, they bring an empty tomb to cities, entire cities and synagogues in those cities, and some people receive it, and some people want to kill them for it. So bring an empty tomb, love people. Don't bring a list of laws. Don't bring morality because their morality is different than ours. They'll just say, well, but that's your way of thinking about the world more moralistically, but mine's over here. The tomb will, the empty tomb will like challenge people and confront in a good way. It'll say like, well, because you can't just shelf that. You can't say, well, yeah, I do believe you that it happened, but that's cool and I don't think it means anything to me. I mean, you can't really do that with, it's harder to do anyway, right? With an, if it really happened, Either we say, well, that means everything to me, or, um, or I just hate it. I kind of, I'm antagonistic towards it. I despise it, and I'm going to attack it, or do, or do my best to suppress it. And you will see both in your life if you haven't already. And all of us at one point were suppressors before we weren't, so that's another thing anyway. But All right, so let's, uh, let's move on here to the final section, verses 9 to 11, just to remind you what it says. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, as he was lifted up, a cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men, these are angels, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right, so what the disciples are seeing here is more of a description rather than a precise depiction of the location of heaven. So, that's not clear. Heaven is not in outer space. Uh, Jesus did ascend, but clouds imply God's presence. This is important, as you'll see in a second here. Clouds imply God's presence biblically, like in Isaiah. I don't think I have a slide for this. Uh, so Isaiah 19.1, if you want to read this in context, it says, See, the Lord rises on a, rides in a swift cloud. Or in Luke 9, Luke's first volume, he says about the transfiguration, While they were still speaking, 
a cloud, the cloud of God's presence, enveloped them. And so this isn't a rain cloud. This is the cloud of, of God, the cloud of God's presence. So Jesus is ascending kind of into God or uh, back to, to be with his Father as, as God the Son. So here then, kind of with that in mind, here's why ascension to God the Father, Jesus doing that, so not us, but him doing that is such good news. This is, this is critical. If you're a Christian, you should know about the ascension. This is a pretty big deal. A lot of traditions have entire uh, days or festivals. It's on the church calendar. The traditional ones, some of you came from those, those kind of traditions. We don't do that. We're too Baptist for that, I guess. But, um, but maybe we should. I don't know. This is, we should know why is this good news. Not that it just happened, but why, where's the undercurrent of the gospel in the doctrine itself? And so that's what I want to spend a few minutes on. So first, Romans 10, 6 to 8 says, But the righteousness or the salvation based on faith, so not the law, but based on faith, says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. This is kind of a hard thing to follow for Paul's a lot of these things in his, in his letters. It's like, what did he say there? This is a little bit tricky. But what he's saying is that faith or trust in God alone for the salvation of, of, of our souls, the forgiveness of our sins, faith does not say ascend to heaven to retrieve salvation. It doesn't say that to us. Nor does it say descend to rescue Christ from the pit or from death or to somehow aid in the resurrection or our salvation. Instead, faith says we wait, we receive, and God does the heavy lifting and the traveling to us. So when it comes to ascension, no one ascends to God, nor should we ask who will do it. That's the wrong question, unless we mean Christ, because he's the only one that ever has. There's a point to that. Christ ascended substitutionarily. So as Christians, we talk a lot about how Christ died for us. We should also say Christ ascended for us. Not as a model to copy, not as something for you to spend your, your Saturdays trying to do, but he did it for us, in our place. He ascended as the Son of God, as a human being, into God's presence to show that the only way we get to God is through this man Christ. His ascension tells the same gospel story. John 1.51, another cool image about this, uh, sort of similar. He says, very truly I tell you, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on me, the Son of Man. So he's saying like, it's a really trippy thing, it's apocalyptic, but he's saying to Nathaniel here, I think, or some other disciples, he's saying, that if you think this miracle was great, let me tell you what you're really going to see. You're going to see heaven open, you're going to see this, this ladder, and you're going to see heaven or the angels of God descending and ascending on this structure. There's more context here that gets more clear at this, but it's really he's portraying himself as a stairway or a ladder between heaven and earth. It's similar to Jacob's dream in Genesis, if you guys have read the story before. Remember how Jacob dreams and he dreams about, we call it Jacob's ladder, but you know he dreams about this ladder in between heaven and earth, and there's angels on it. Jesus is saying, I came to make that dream true. It's a great dream. Because it shows that heaven's coming to earth. And there's access now between a cursed earth and perfect heaven. There's access. It's just a dream for Jacob. But now Jesus is saying, I'm the ladder. I'm the stairway. I'm the bridge between God and fallen earth. 
or really God and sinners. But, but again, look at the way he's writing this here. It's saying that he's not saying that we are the ladder, nor is he actually kind of telling us how to climb it, which is really weird. Like if you think in a dream, if you saw a ladder or in any capacity, like what's the point of ladders? Like you should climb them, right? So to like show a ladder and then for there not to be any ascension on it is just kind of like, you know, it's not really the point, but it's kind of a buzzkill, you know. It's almost like dreaming about a flashing red button that says push me, but no one ever pushes it. Whatever. All right. So it's kind of like that, though. It's sort of like, oh, man, someone should climb that. But no, it's just angels, and that's it. Then he wakes up. And then later Jesus is saying, that whole thing was me. And now it's all about me. And, and, and it's not about Jesus instructing them to climb it, but rather just to look at it. Isn't that great? That's the whole point of Christianity is beholding, and, and this is what the disciples are doing in Acts 1. Remember, they're just looking at Jesus go up, right? And maybe looking a little bit too long, the angels are like poking them and saying, actually, okay, guys, come on, focus here. The Holy Spirit's coming, but that's fine. But they're looking, they're beholding. They're not emulating or copying. They're watching Christ work for them and to ascend to God on their behalf, substitutionarily. And before that, to descend to save them. And so I want to talk about that just for a minute here too because Ephesians 4.9, this is how the Bible itself logically talks about and thinks about the doctrine of the ascension. It says, in this kind of parenthetical question, it says, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? Isn't that an interesting question? It's sort of like saying, when you think about ascension, you have to think about descension. You have to. Because to ascend, you've got to come down first. And so the doctrine of the ascension means the, the cross. It means the death of Jesus. It means that he came down. It means that he condescended. It means that he became dark. It means that he, became, he took on pain. It means that. It implies it. And so we have to go there when we talk about the ascension. Even the, the language here, too, maybe some of you guys saw this, but the language in Acts 1-9, which is talking about the ascension, as they were looking on, he was, the word, the, the phrase is lifted up. That same exact phrase is used by Jesus in John 3-14 to refer to his crucifixion. So it's like it means the ascension, but it's almost like he's saying, with the language itself, he's kind of saying, like, I, I want you to remember how I was lifted up before how it was lifted up on the cross before. And, and the context here is Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. If you guys know that story from Numbers, when people are dying from viper bites or something like that because they did something, they, did, they sinned. And there's judgment. God provides this way out. And it's this weird thing with this serpent on the end of a pole. And God says, if you look at that, if you look at it, if you look at it alone, you'll be healed and the plague will stop. And so Jesus likens himself to that story. And he says, that was about me too. Just like Jacob's dream. So must I be lifted up on a pole, lifted up on a tree, lifted up to die, and cursed for, for you. And so even the language itself brings us back. It, the, the whole thing, um, this reminded me of C.S. Lewis's famous metaphor of the diver. You guys read this before? Um, I'll just read it here. I got it on the screen because it's just so good. In this metaphor, the diver is Christ, just to be clear. So when, when you think about the gospel, one may think of a diver. First reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, 
vanishing, rushing down through the green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay. Then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing he went down to recover. He and it are both colored now that they have come up into the light. Down below, where it lay colorless in the dark, he lost his color too. Here's the whole point to dissension and ascension. That's the gospel. Christ is the diver, and this is also part of the gospel. We are the precious thing he went to get. See, it's not just about him ascending for us. It's about what does ascension mean except first that he descended to do something to our benefit. He came to get us, and when he came to get us, he lost his color and his glory. He spent it all. Even his last breath. Uh, to die for us before ascending back with us in his hands. Matthew 13, 45 to 46, a parable of Christ. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven, this is what it's like. This is what Christianity is like. It's like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So let me just say this. This is um, sometimes taught really well on and sometimes not. Um, We say this a lot here. The Bible is much less about you than you think it is. The point of this parable is not that you are the merchant finding something great. It's not that it's wrong to apply it that way, but the point here is that Jesus is the merchant and he finds the pearl and you are the pearl. He spent it all to find you. It cost him everything. He's happy to save you. He wants to save you. You see, so don't be burdened by, oh shoot, have I emptied my bank accounts for the kingdom? Am I really saved? Be a good steward of your money. But that's not what this is about. This is about Jesus. Like, is, the kingdom is like this. A merchant, the son of God, who came to retrieve us, who spent all he had his entire life, then bursting forth in glorious day, he arose, ascended on high with our salvation in hand, with us in hand. In that, in that way, then, all of a sudden, the ascension becomes not just this, oh, I guess he had to do that. It's this really great gospel thing. He did it for us, and he first descended to get us. So a couple of quick final words here. Uh, snarky angels like to encourage. I, and I say snarky because I don't know, I can't get in the mind of, we can't get in the mind of, of the angels, but they, it sounds sarcastic whenever they say, where they say, um, guys, why are you looking into heaven? Like, he's going to come back. This, is, um, this reminded me of in Luke. Remember this whole um, tomb exchange where there's these people at the tomb and, and the angels say, why are you look for, looking for the living among the dead? You guys remember that? It's like the same language. It's got to be the same angel, don't you think? It's the same guy. It's the snarky angel who says, why do you look for the living among the dead? You know, kind of like laughing at his friend angel, like fools or whatever, you know, but... Um, it's the same one. He's like saying, why are you looking into heaven? It's almost like, give the guys a break, these angels. But anyway, I got to think they have a sense of humor, but that's sort of beside the point. All right. But the angels encourage. And the encouragement is, in light of the ascension, he's coming back. Right? This is still yet future to us even. He's co- obviously, he's coming back. And so, in case the message isn't clear yet, 
He didn't just descend. He didn't just ascend. He's coming back another time for his church. I mean, he can't stop getting to you guys. He's, you're that special and precious to him. He travels everywhere to the outer reaches, to the uttermost, to get to you. The angelic message isn't, now go and ascend yourselves, because this isn't a ladder-climbing religion. The, the message, the angelic message is, he's going to return for us here on this earth. And so if you see anything, guys, today, for all of us, this is what I think this, this means, is Jesus is relentless in his pursuit of you. Relentless. Even now, there's an end game here that ends with him traveling a great distance to be with you. And in one sense, he already is by his spirit. He's already here. But in terms of like being here in body, coming again, revealing himself again, loving again, coming to rescue again, coming to be a perfect king again, coming to show us the love of God and the forgiveness of God again. Relentless. He's traveled the farthest distances, dove the deepest oceans. He spent it all. And so the, the message here, kind of through the lens of ascension, is believe in him and let the fact that he ascended remind you that he descended first. And, and think about it. Know it. That it's by grace you're saved, not by works. It's by faith you're saved, not by keeping the laws of God. But simply trusting that Jesus has been, and God has been amazing over and over and over again for you every single day. And we, we can understand like a speck of that. I mean, if it, it's like, it's an ocean and we have like half a drop. But by God's grace, it's still enough. But, he, it, but think about it, you know. Uh, be be, be a, an unashamedly and robustly gospel-centered Christian in how you read these things like we did today and how you think about your life and how you think about what it means to be saved and a witness. So believe in him, guys. And then, then after that, and only after that, go and tell someone that he's alive. And like Peter says, be prepared to give a defense. And, and again, I would say love people well and be prepared to centralize the historical and theologically, um, the theologically and historically uh, empty tomb. And so let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for today, for your grace. Your grace abounds in this passage. Uh, it's so rich. Help us, Father, to um, just to know these things, maybe for the first time for some of us, or the thousandth, to remember the fact that you, man, you are so good. Thank you for descending for us. Thank you for ascending for us. And thank you for coming a second time, which we pray you would hasten again for us, for your church. Uh, Father, help us to sing these last, uh, this uh, last song with, um, with joy and thankfulness and trust that really everything you have done in the world through your death and resurrection and ascension, that the gift of the Holy Spirit that those first Christians did not deserve and we don't either, all of that, it really is sufficient. There is nothing more to do. There's nothing more to believe. There's no act uh, that you have not first done and, and are continuing to do in the world. Uh, Father, so free us from bad theologies that are contrary to that, that sound kind of good because they're kind of Christianized, but put us too much at the center and not enough of you. Uh, thank you for coming to get us and prizing us even though we're not that valuable to you for some crazy reason we are. In Christ we pray.